0: You are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Well, good morning. I hope you guys are doing well. Uh, It's good to be here with you. Um, Before we jump in this morning, I do want to take a second to um, get my iPad to change its orientation. Uh, No, I want to take a second to just remind us of something we've heard and to make sure you're aware of this. So, Next Sunday, June 14th, is going to be the first wave of us kind of regathering in person as a church, and we're super excited about that. Um, Bill talked about this in kind of the opening video. There's information on our website. We're trying to go above and uh, beyond to communicate this information to you, that we're going to have three services, one at 8, one at 9.30, one at 11. Um, we're going to uh, rope off every other row. Uh, capacity is going to be cut in half, and so we're going to do the best we can to accommodate as many people as we possibly can. And again, as I said, as excited as we are about this, I did wanna take a moment to just recognize the fact that it is not fair for us to say that we are, we're back um, because there's gonna be a contingency of our people who aren't gonna be able to come, either because they fall into a high-risk category or they don't feel comfortable gathering or, or even because we're not gonna have our children's ministries for the first couple of weeks and so they're not gonna feel the freedom to come and gather. And so for those reasons, I just want to say, we are excited about being back in the room next week together with some of us, um, but we're not all gonna be together. And so I just wanna say to those people that we will miss you, you are not forgotten, and we're eager to all be in the room uh, together. Uh, Last thing about that, um, registration is going to be available online about midweek for the general public. We're gonna send an email to our members just to make sure that we can accommodate, again, as many people as we possibly can for that. And if you need more information about how to register, please visit our website. All right, if you got a Bible, will you turn with me to Genesis chapter 46? As you're turning there, let me set up where we're going this morning. Um, I have three kids now. I think this is the first time I've used an illustration about my kids where now there's three of them instead of just two. Um, So I have three kids now, a daughter and two sons. And my daughter's only four months older, right there at it. And so she's not providing a ton of, sermon illustration material for us yet, except for maybe the patience that God is teaching me. Um, But my my boys, on the other hand, that's a completely different story, right? They're full of good material for us. And so one of the challenges of parenting that I didn't anticipate was the training that had to happen for them to teach them when it is not appropriate to say certain things to certain people. Um, And so here's some examples from experience. The other day, we were walking in our neighborhood my family and I, and, and this woman's approaching us on a bicycle, and so I look down, and I see my four-year-old staring at her, and I'm starting to get a little nervous, right? Like, what's he gonna say? And he waits until she gets right next to us, and in his outside voice, because we're also teaching him between, the difference between his inside and his outside voice, in his outside voice, he says to me, Daddy, she's too old to be doing that. <laughs> and then he says, so there's no, you know, so to, to further clarify, he says, because grandmas aren't supposed to be riding bicycles. Like, what do you do in that moment, right? Like, and I can't apologize to her. She's down the road. Like, she already passed us. I'm like, she for sure hurt him. Her feelings are probably hurt. Should I chase her down? What do I do? Um, But this is the kind of thing that happens all the time, right? My wife told me about one just yesterday. They're in the grocery store or Sam's or something like that, and this lady passes, and she doesn't have a mask on, you know? Um, And so he says to her or to my my wife, I'm not exactly sure at home, like, she needs to be wearing a mask. She's gonna get the virus, right? He just just points things out. This is what kids do. I've asked around. It's not just my kids. When something's different, they notice it and they point it out. And so the reason why I share that with you this morning is because this is how it should be for us as the people of God. Not that we tell grandmothers they're too old to ride bicycles. That's not what I mean at all. If you wanna ride a bicycle, please do so. Feel free to do that. Um, But what I mean is that we should be noticeably different as the people of God, we should be noticeably different than the world around us. There are some things, certain things, that should set us apart as the people of God. And so as we walk through this passage this morning, I'm gonna give us three things that should be identifiable about us, that should set us apart as the people of God. So since January, we've been working through this sermon series in the book of Genesis, and for the last few weeks, we've been talking about a guy named Joseph. And so what we've seen so far about Joseph is that he's had a rough go of it in his life, right? So he uh, started back when he was a teenager. Uh, the Bible says that his brothers actually hated him um, and they were jealous of him because of the way that their father treated Joseph. And this wasn't just kind of kids being kids sort of jealousy, right? This, is, um, this was serious. And so much so that one day they decide, hey, we've had enough of Joseph and his stuff and how daddy likes him more, and so let's kill him. They decide to just kill him. They chicken out at the last minute, and instead what they do is they sell Joseph um, as a slave to some strangers who are on their way to Egypt, and they have to lie then to cover it up to their dad. And they tell him that man Joseph is dead, he's been killed by a wild animal. They show him his coat that they dipped in blood. So Jacob's convinced of this, and as you would expect, when Jacob uh, hears this news, he's devastated. I want you to, to hear this. Genesis 37, should be on the screen. Then Jacob tears his garments, and he put a sackcloth on his loins, and he mourned for his son for many days. And all his sons and his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. And so this, I'll go down to Sheol," Sheol, what Jacob means there is that there is nothing that could possibly keep me from mourning. I will be mourning every day for the rest of my life. There is nothing that could comfort me. But what he doesn't know is that Joseph isn't dead. He's actually a slave in Egypt. And so through a series of ups and downs in Joseph's life, he actually ends up as second in command, a ruler over all of Egypt, the Bible says. And where we left off last week was despite the fact that all of what Joseph's brothers had done to him Joseph extends them this radical forgiveness. And there's this beautiful picture at the end of chapter 45 of them hugging and weeping with one another. And then what happens is he sends them back to Canaan and he says, I want you to go get everyone. Go tell dad where I am and that I'm okay and that I'm alive. Go get everyone and bring everything and you guys come to Egypt so you can live with me so I can provide for you. So they do, they go back to Canaan, they tell their father what Joseph said, but at first Jacob doesn't believe them. And so then what happens is they show him these wagons that Joseph sent them to ride in. And this must have been like nothing that Jacob had ever seen before, right? These Egyptian wagons. And so essentially what this would be like is Joseph sending the presidential motorcade to go get his family and bring them back. And so when Joseph sees this, the Bible says that his spirit revived. A word that means to be brought back to life from death, right? And in Genesis 45, verse 28, this is the last verse of 45, Israel said this, this is his response, it's enough, Joseph, my son, is still alive, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna see him before I die, it's enough, he says, which means I don't need any more evidence, I'm going to Egypt, and this is where we pick it up today, Genesis 46, starting in verse one, so Israel, he took his journey with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba, and he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. So Jacob and his family, they're going to Egypt, right? He's gonna go see Joseph and they get about 25 miles in and they stop. They stop at a place called Beersheba and they stay for the night. And if you're reading this on your own, so he offers sacrifices to God, you might be thinking, well, it must've been Sunday morning, right? This dude really wanted to worship. Or maybe he wanted to stop because he, he forgot to pray for traveling mercies before they left. Like why would he stop there for the night? But there's something else going on here. See, Beersheba was the southernmost point of the land of Canaan. That's the land that God promised Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, I'm going to give you this land. And not only that, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to be with you wherever you go and I'm going to bless you so that you will bless the world, right? That you'll be a great nation and you'll bless the world. So um, Beersheba is this significant place for Jacob and his family. Abraham and Isaac had had these significant encounters with God at Beersheba. And as far as we can tell, this is where Jacob grew up before he had to leave Beersheba to run from his life when he's afraid of his brother Esau. This was a significant place for Jacob. Not only is it the last exit before leaving the promised land, but what's interesting here is why he stops. And we'll get there in a second, but verse three says that God says to Jacob, don't be afraid. And so if God says to you, don't be afraid, that means you're scared. It's not just a shot in the dark. God knows what's going on. So he says, don't be afraid. And the question we have to answer is, why would Jacob be afraid? He had just received the best news of his life. His son, who he thought had been dead for over 20 years, is alive and he's excited and packs everything and he's going to see him, but now he's afraid. He gets 25 miles down the road and he stops. What could honestly be more important to Jacob in that moment than going to see Joseph? I mean, anything you could think of. And the answer is obedience to God. This is the first thing that should set us apart as the people of God, that what we should want, rather what God wants should be more important to us than what we want. Another way to say that is obedience to God is more important than our own desires. This is what we see in Jacob here. He's heard this incredible news. Joseph is still alive and so he says, I'm going to see my boy and he heads to Egypt and as they're about to leave Canaan, the reality of what he was doing began to set in on him. As he gets to that last exit before he leaves the promised land, the reality of what he was doing sets in on him, the land that God promised to give Abraham back in Genesis 12. And again, not only that, God tells Abraham, I will bless you, I will be with you, I will make you into a great nation, I will bless the whole earth through you. And God makes that same promise to Isaac, Jacob's father, and then in Genesis 28, he brings uh, Jacob into that promise as well. And so on top of all of that, as special as a place Beersheba was for Jacob's family, the fact that it was the last exit before leaving the promised land, Egypt was the complete opposite of Beersheba for Jacob's family. And here's why. In Genesis 12, Abraham, because of a famine, leaves the land of promise and he goes to Egypt because of a famine. And it doesn't go well for him there. And then in Genesis 26, also because of a famine, his, Jacob's daddy Isaac was contemplating leaving Canaan because of this famine. I need to go to Egypt to find food and the Lord wouldn't let him. Look at this, Genesis 26. And the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land in which I tell you. Sojourn in this land and I will be with you and I will bless you for to you and your offspring I will give all these lands. So as bad as Jacob wanted to go to Joseph, there was something that mattered more to him and it was being obedient to God. Jacob didn't wanna step outside of God's will for his life and in the same way, this should be one of the things that sets us apart as the people of God, that what God wants should be more important to us than what we want. And that doesn't mean that our desires don't matter to God because they do. What it does mean is that what should ultimately be the driving force, the motivating factor in our decision making is not what we want in any given moment, but what God has said. And it means we take those desires that we have in those moments and we bring them to God and we bring them to his word and we ask a question, does what I want in this moment, does it run contrary to what God has said? You bring those things to God. Here's some examples. So when you have the opportunity to cheat on a test or you have the opportunity to be a little shady on a business deal so you can increase your profit margins or maybe things are starting to escalate physically with someone you're dating or you're fooling around with someone who's not your spouse, when that starts to happen and you feel that thing in your spirit, that starts to well up like Abraham did as he got close to leaving Canaan. When you feel that come up in you, instead of justifying it, Instead of saying things like, man, no one's gonna find out what could it hurt, even if they do find out who cares because I can do what I want anyways, I deserve this. Instead of justifying it, you bring that desire to God and you ask the question, does what I want and what am I doing right now, is it running in opposition to what God has said? Because you put obedience to God ahead of your own desires because ultimately you know that the creator God of the universe knows better then you do what is actually gonna satisfy the deep longings of your heart. We elevate obedience to God over our own desires in any given moment. And I'm not trying to pretend that this is easy. What I'm saying is this is what sets us apart as the people of God. It's not easy. It wasn't easy for Jacob and it won't be for us because saying no to something in the moment is difficult, but it's worth it. And maybe you have something in your mind right now playing in your head. A time where you hit a fork in the road, right, and And you know, God says, don't go this way. It doesn't go well for me if I go that way, but you do it anyways because you want to. Because you elevate your desires over what God has said, and in that moment, you believe that you know better than God does what's actually gonna satisfy you. Maybe you have that scene playing in your mind right now, you feel guilty and shame, and you feel like a failure. Well, if that's you, you're in good company because so did Jacob. In Genesis chapter 34, God tells Jacob to leave where he's at with his uncle Laban up in Haran and I want you to go back to the promised land. I want you to go to Bethel. And Jacob does. He's obedient to God and he packs his family up and he leaves despite the cost, despite the consequence and he goes back to Bethel but instead of getting all the way there, he stops about 20 miles short at a place called Shechem and the reason why is basically because Jacob believed he knew better what would satisfy him than God did. He goes, what what could it hurt? This is close enough, right? Right? He elevates his desires over obedience to God and the consequence of that decision, that half obedience is devastating for Jacob and his family. And so Jacob has been there before. He felt that guilt and he felt like a failure before, but what he found out through that and what you have to see in this, what Jacob found out through that is despite his past failures, God hadn't abandoned him. God hasn't give up on him. And he realizes as he's on his way to Egypt to go see his son, again, what could matter more to him in that moment, he realizes I'm about to take my family outside of the promised land. So he stops. He remembers what happens in Genesis 34 and he learns from his mistake. So before we go any farther, what I want you to hear in this is the Bible is not saying you must obey God or else. What the Bible's saying here is despite your past failures, God has not and will not give up on you. He's inviting you to trust that what he wants for you is far better than anything that you could create for yourself. He's inviting you to trust him, to quit making the same mistakes over and over again and to believe, actually believe that if you want happiness and satisfaction in the world, you don't have to go around God to get it. You can go to him. He's invited us to come to him, to bring our desires and to hold him up and say, does what I want in this moment, does it run in opposition to what God has said? Because if it does, I'm gonna trust him. I'm gonna be willing to say no to myself in this moment, no matter how difficult or costly it might be, because I know what God has for me is better than anything I could carve out for myself. He's inviting us to come to him. And then look what happens as Jacob does this. God shows up, verse two. God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and he said, Jacob, Jacob said, here I am. And then God said to him, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for there I'm gonna make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I also will bring you up again and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. And so God shows up to Jacob and what he's doing here is he's reaffirming the covenant promise. He's reminding Jacob, I haven't given up on you. He reaffirms the covenant promise and he says, don't be afraid to go to Egypt and you need to see the kindness of God here. Don't be afraid to go to Egypt. Here's why, because I'm going with you, because I will make you a great nation there and because I will bring you back again. And then he says, and Joseph will close your eyes. The son that you thought has been dead for over 20 years will be with you as you leave your, or as you breathe your last breath. The kindness of God. And then look what happens next, verse five. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. He's like, okay, if God's with me, then I'm going, right? I'm going to see, nothing is stopping me now. Jacob set out for Beersheba. The sons of Israel, they carried Jacob. He's so old, they have to carry him, right? The little ones, their wives, and the wagons Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they gained in the land of Canaan. They came into Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him. He got his sons, his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all of his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. So what you need to see there is Jacob does not hedge his bets with God. He is completely obedient because he doesn't leave a single person behind. Hey, why don't I leave Reuben and Simeon? You guys have been sort of responsible. Why don't I leave you guys behind in Canaan to kind of hold it down while we're gone? No, everyone goes. Which says that God is, or Jacob is trusting God at his word completely. He's learning from his mistakes. He's putting obedience to God ahead of his own desires. I promise you, he had the thought in the back of his head, everything we've built is gonna be lost if we leave. Maybe we should leave somebody behind. No, he goes. Look at verse eight. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt. It says Jacob and his sons. And then what you're gonna see for the next 20 verses, which I I won't read for you, but you should later. It's riveting. um, Is Jacob's family. That Moses lists out in this great detail. He just lines out Jacob's sons and his families. Again, he takes this incredible detail and he, he groups them in a specific way according to Jacob's wives. And, and so they're all listed there. Then in the verse 27, it says this all the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. So you're probably thinking, why is this in the Bible? Especially here, right? Because the stage is being set for this reunion between a father and his son, and they haven't seen each other for 20 years, and the father has thought his son is dead. Get to the action, Moses. Why would you put this in here? And one thing we have to remember if we want to answer that question is the audience that this book was written to. So we got a group of people who had just left Egypt, and they're wandering in the wilderness. And they've been told by God, this is the audience that Moses writes Genesis to, they've been told by God, now you're in the wilderness, I'm going to bring you into the land of promise. I'm going to bring you into Canaan, but things weren't happening the way that they thought they should. And so they began to get bitter at God, so much so they say this to Moses, look, Exodus 14, they say, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? What have you done to us in bringing us out of oppressive slavery? Because this is worse is what they're saying, right? They're griping about the fact that God has delivered them. And so as they're on their way out of Egypt and they're in the wilderness and they're they're waiting, when is it gonna be our turn to go into the promised land? God, when are you gonna stand up and, and fulfill your word? They're hearing about this other group of people who are on their way into Egypt. And the thing is, it wasn't just a random group of people they were hearing about, it's their family. Right, so what we have here, kind of the middle of Genesis 46, is it's pretty much the 1400 B.C. version of Ancestry.com. That's what's happening here. And the thing about Ancestry.com, if you've ever done any kind of work like that, I haven't, but if you did, my guess is it's not very exciting unless you're talking about your own family, and so this list might not mean much to you and me, but for this group of people in the wilderness and they're wondering how in the world is God gonna get us from this place to, be, to, to possess the land of Canaan? How is God gonna fulfill these promises to us? To them, this would have been incredibly significant and the reason why is because they weren't 70 people anymore. They're over 2 million. And so they hear this list of 70 names, no doubt a lot of them they're recognizing because they're related to them And now they know that's how we're gonna possess the land. That's how we're gonna get into the promised land the same way that that group of people got into Egypt because of the faithfulness of God. This is the second thing that sets us apart as the people of God. We remember that God is faithful. The people of God live their lives with an awareness that their God is faithful. This is why Moses puts this in here so that the people of God would look back and remember no matter how difficult our lives may be, God has been faithful to us in the past and we have every reason to believe that he will be faithful to us now. So maybe right now your life feels like you're wandering in the wilderness. Right, you're not sure why you are where you are. You're not sure how any of this could possibly be meant for your good. And you remember that God is faithful. We just sang about it, that God is good. And you look back in your life and his past faithfulness and you allow that to give you the hope that you need in the present. Because the reality of that situation is these 70 that came into Egypt as a decent-sized family, they're brought out of Egypt as a great nation. Exactly how how God said they would be. God is faithful. And what sets us apart is we live our lives through that lens and we remember that our God is faithful. No matter how dry and weary we may be, that means we know He hasn't abandoned us, he hasn't forgotten us. And more than that, he is at work in the mess of our lives. He's promised us he will be with us in the wilderness, he'll be with us in Egypt. Our God is with us, he's faithful. Look at verse 28. And he had sent Judah ahead of him, that's Jacob, he sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen and they came into the land of Goshen. So this says that Jacob sends Judah ahead of them to show the way. And that sounds like he's saying, hey, Judah, go figure out some directions for us. I'm tired of this bumping around. I'm old. I'm 130 years old. Like, I just want a straight path, right? It sounds like he's asking for directions. But this show us the way is actually, he's saying, hey, go tell your brother we're here. Go tell him we've arrived in Goshen just like you said you wanted us to. Go tell him we're here. And so that's what happens. And this is setting the stage for this father-son reunion, again, after having not seen each other for 20 years. Look at Verse 29. And he presented himself to him. That's Joseph presented himself to Jacob. And he fell on his neck and he wept on his neck a good while. And Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face and I know that you are still alive. So this word here, it said that Joseph presented himself, right? He presented himself to Pharaoh. Other places in Genesis, it's translated appeared. This word presented, it's translated appeared. I think the idea here is they're coming towards each other, is that Joseph was riding toward his father Jacob. And it says earlier in the, in, the, in the verse there that he prepared his chariot. So Israel is riding on wagons, but Joseph is on a chariot because he's royalty in Egypt. So he's surrounded by an entourage of servants, and they're riding toward each other, wagons and chariots coming towards each other. And then Joseph appeared to Jacob which means they're starting to see each other in the distance. And as the the gap begins to close, the emotions begin to build. And this was a moment for Jacob that he never thought would come. He thought he would never, again, he said this back in Genesis. Genesis. Nothing can stop my mourning. He thought this moment would never come, but here it is, and his heart's beating hard, and his palms are sweaty, right? It felt like it was taking forever. Then all of a sudden, Joseph's close enough. He says, forget it, jumps out of the chariot, runs to his father, Jacob, and they hug each other. And they're weeping, and they're holding on to each other, and the ESV says, a good while. Other translations are more helpful here. It just says, a long time. Imagine this moment. This man of power and authority and royalty sprinting toward his father, hugging him, and he doesn't want to let go. I think a lot could be said from these few verses, but what came to mind when I was reading this this week is not only should we be set apart by remembering God's faithfulness in the past, but as the people of God, we should be set apart by celebrating God's faithfulness in the present, celebrating his faithfulness in the here and now, let me just ask you this question. Why is it easier for us to complain about what God hasn't done in our lives than it is to celebrate what he has done? Why is that the case? Why does life in this world make it easier for us to gripe and to grumble about what God hasn't done rather than to be grateful about what he has done? And maybe this is just me, but I don't think I'm alone here. What sets us apart as the people of God is that we should not only remember his faithfulness in the past, that we should be experts in celebrating his faithfulness in the moment, in the here and now. And I'm not talking about some thin, look for the silver lining version of life. I'm talking about a deep posture of gratitude for who our God is and what he's accomplished for us in our life that actually changes the way we live. Not look for the, just make the best of the worst. No, God of the universe sent his son so that you might be reconciled to him. A deep posture of gratitude. And look, man, I get it. I know there are seasons of life that are so painful that it may seem impossible to find anything to celebrate. And maybe that's where you are right now, I don't know. What I do know is in Luke 15, Jesus tells a story that is really similar to what we just read in Genesis 46, and and you probably know the story. It's not of a a powerful, wealthy son running toward his weary father. No, it's Jesus telling the story of a father running out to his son. And so the son is afraid to go home because of the guilt and and the shame of his past failures. And when he finally works up the courage to go home, he doesn't know what he'll expect. And what we find out is that his father is waiting for him He's waiting for him, he's looking out on the horizon and he sees him and he isn't disappointed, but rather when he sees him, he's filled with delight and he sprints out to his son, much like Jacob and Joseph and the father wraps his arms around the son and he doesn't wanna let go. There's this celebration of the son who was gone, but now he's here and he just doesn't wanna let go and he's just holding on to his son because he's back. And while he's holding his son, he tells his servants, he says, I want you to just go throw the biggest party you possibly can. And they say, Why? And he says this, his response, Luke 15, verse 24, because my son was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Friends, the whole reason that Jesus tells this story is to show us how God the Father feels about you and me. And so regardless of how painful your life may be, that is a reason to celebrate because our God is faithful. And what's crazy is even that's easy to forget, isn't it? If we're honest, all of who God is and what he's accomplished for us, that's why David in the Psalms, in Psalm 51, he says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. I think what he's getting at there is he's just kind of pleading with the Lord and just saying, God, will you help me to remember all that you've done and help me to celebrate it? Help me to remember, Lord, that you're faithful and help me to celebrate it. So I just want you to consider for a moment. Where would you be Right now, how different would your life be right now if the gospel weren't true? If we want God to restore to us the joy of our salvation, how different would your life be if Jesus hadn't come and laid his life down for you? So that you could be brought back into right relationship with God the Father, so that you might be delighted in. Friends, our God is faithful. Look at verse 31, Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I'm gonna go up and I'm gonna tell Pharaoh and I'm gonna say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were with me in the land of Canaan, they've come to me and the men are shepherds for they've been keepers of livestock and they brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have and when Pharaoh calls you and says, what's your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. So right after this emotional reunion between Jacob and Joseph, Joseph turns to his brothers and he says, I want you to stay here in Goshen and I'm going to go and talk to Pharaoh for you. I'm going to kind of set the stage there. I'm going to tell them that you've been shepherds and you've always been shepherds, which means you're not trying to take any position of authority in Egypt. You're fine with Goshen. And he kind of preps them on the conversation. And you're probably thinking, why is it so important for Joseph, that Pharaoh would know their shepherds. Well, the end of 34 says, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd in his abomination to the Egyptians, which basically just means they were viewed as dirty, and so they didn't like mix, they didn't intermingle. And Joseph has a purpose here. Right? He has a purpose here. Goshen was a part of Egypt, but it was outside of the city limits. So what Joseph is doing is he's he's prepping his brothers to make sure that what you're gonna end up with is Goshen. And this is what happens, right? Joseph's brothers go to see Pharaoh and he asks them, what's your occupation? And just like Joseph says, they say, we're shepherds. And then Pharaoh responds this way, verse five. Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. So not only does Pharaoh give them the land of Goshen to live in, but he actually offers them a job if they want it. And the reason why that's important for us is it shows us the amount of favor that Joseph had with Pharaoh. So Pharaoh goes above and beyond to welcome Joseph's family into Egypt, which means it's not inconceivable for us to think that it could have worked out a different way, that Joseph's family could have been given government official jobs in Egypt if they wanted to, if they'd have played their cards right. They could have been a, a part of the most powerful government on the planet at the time, which would have been their ticket for security for the rest of their lives, that they would be able to get out of this land of wandering. They wouldn't be living in tents and taking care of animals anymore. They could be living high on the hog, right? This was their ticket to be secure, but when it's all said and done, the Israelites end up in Goshen. They end up not assimilating into Egyptian life and culture in the capital city where Joseph and Pharaoh lived, but they're removed from the center of Egyptian life. And we'll see why here in a second. Look at verse seven. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and he stood him before Pharaoh. a Man so weak that his son has to hold him there, right? And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many of the days of the years of your life? How old are you, basically? Sounds like something my son would say. And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. They have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and he went out from the presence of Pharaoh. And so for the sake of time, I'm gonna show you two things that I want you to see in this conversation here between Pharaoh and Jacob. So Pharaoh says to Jacob, hey, how old are you? And he responds, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. So this word sojourning here, it means to be a pilgrim or a stranger, right? It means that you're on a journey in a place that isn't your home, that you have a mission and a purpose in a place that isn't your home, but one day you will be called back. And this is why Israel couldn't assimilate into Egypt. It's why they needed to live and remain separate in Goshen because they were sojourners, because the calling on their life was not to live in Egypt forever, but that one day God would bring them back to the promised land. He'd bring them back to Canaan because they were sojourners. And this is the third thing that should set us apart as the people of God. We're sojourners, that we are strangers, right? We are pilgrims in this world. We are in the same way on a journey. We have a mission and a purpose in a place that is not our home. Maybe you've heard it said this way, we are in the world, not of the world. That comes from the way Jesus prays in John 17 when he says, I'm about to leave, but they're about to stay. They're in the world, but they're not of it. And just as Israel sojourns in Goshen until they're called to the promised land, Christians in the world today, we live as sojourners until Jesus returns and he ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. Like Peter says in 1 Peter 2, verse 11, he says, beloved, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh, which which wage war against your soul. He says, you're strangers and you're exiles. Again, you're sojourners. This is what sets us apart from the world around us. And if we understand this, it changes how we live. Because if you're on a journey in a place that's not your ultimate home, it means that you shouldn't be surprised when this life isn't all you want it to be. And that could be everything from the deep pain that comes from living life in a broken world, just those gut-wrenching, horrific things that happen, all the way to the low-grade disappointment, that happens, that even when you do get the thing that you thought, man, that's the thing that's gonna make my life what I want it to be. Even when you do get that, and still it doesn't seem to measure up. The whole spectrum of just pain in a broken world, either deep gut-wrenching pain all the way to just low-grade disappointments where you feel like you always hit the ceiling and you can never quite get the joy that you expect to get. But if you know you're sojourners, you don't expect this world to satisfy you. So when we experience the pain of grief or even those low-grade disappointments, as Bill said earlier, the Bible says that we grieve in this world. We will have grief, but not like those who don't have hope, because we have a hope that our God is faithful and that we have a hope of of being sojourners because we know there is a better day coming for us. We're sojourners, and the other thing I want you to see about this conversation is what happens right after the conversation and right before it. In verse seven and verse 10, it says that Jacob blesses Pharaoh, right? This 130-year-old man, so weak, he has to be held up by his son, is standing before the king of Egypt, the most powerful man on the planet. Who would you expect to do the blessing there? Who would you expect to be the one who extends the other one something that would change their lives forever? You would expect it to be Pharaoh, but instead, Jacob is the one who does the blessing, and he does it twice, And what's happening here is the beginning of the fulfillment of the promise that God makes to Abraham back in Genesis 12. And he says, I'm gonna bless you. I'm gonna make you into a great nation and you're gonna bless all the earth. This is kind of the the incubation of that promise coming to fulfillment as Israel is flourishing because of Joseph being there. And now here's the patriarch Jacob and he shows up and he's extending blessing to Egypt. And in the same way, this should define our sojourning. That we are blessed by God, that we might be a blessing to the world around us. The way Jesus would say this in Matthew 5 is that we are the salt of the earth, that we are the light of the world. We're sojourners, sent by God on a journey in a place that is isn't our home, not to assimilate, not to just mix in and just just carve out your best life now, right, but to, to be a blessing, to be salt and light, to be the light of the world, to be noticeably different, to be a blessing to the people around us. And the point is this, just because this isn't our home, it doesn't mean you treat it like a rental. You know how you do with a rental car. You know what you do when you're in a hotel room or you rent a home and you're on the way out, it doesn't matter if you ding the wall, no. God's commissioned us to live set apart lives that we might leave the place better than it was when we found it that we would be so convinced of God's love for us that it actually compels us to love the people around us. Look at verse 11. So then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, the best of the land, the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. In verse 12, and Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. So again, it wasn't Egypt that blessed Israel, it was Israel that was a blessing to Egypt and God used Joseph to not only save the people of God from famine, but to save the entire country of Egypt. And again, this fulfillment starts, the fulfillment of this promise starts in Jacob's son, Joseph, but it finds its ultimate end in the person and work of Jesus. A man from the line of the tribe of Judah who, like Joseph, is sold by his brothers. He's thrown into sin, or thrown into prison for sins that he didn't commit. Only he wasn't assumed to be dead. Jesus actually died. Why did he do this work? He takes the punishment that you and I deserve so that, like Joseph, in the midst of a famine, he could provide for his family. He's invited us in. The point of Genesis, not only is God faithful, not only should we put what he desires above what we desire. Not only are we sojourners, the point of Genesis is that Jesus is the greater Joseph. That he has what we need. so we go to him and he begins to transform our lives and we begin to look noticeably different. All of a sudden we go, yeah, I I can say no to my flesh in this moment because I know my God is faithful. Because I know what he has for me in this moment may be difficult, but it's better than anything I could hope for better than anything I could do on my own. We know our God is faithful and we realize we're sojourners. We're sent by God, we're blessed by him to be a blessing to the world around us. Let me pray for us and then let's respond in worship. Father, we're thankful this morning for your grace, for your mercy, thankful that you love us enough to give us the reminder You haven't left us, you haven't abandoned us, and you never will. And so help us, Father, to believe that. Help us to remember that you're good. To see your faithfulness in our life. I pray for those who are in a season where they feel like they're in the wilderness. God, would you protect us from griping like the Israelites in Exodus 14 of saying, hey, did you just bring us out here to die? Is it because there's no graves in Egypt? God, would you protect us from that? Help us to be like David, Psalm 51, when we say, restore to me the joy of my salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name.